If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at Burrow.com ACAST. That's 15% off at borough.com slash ACAST. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the Internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. I mean, like, if we're being real, like, Haley should have written Blood of Olympus. <laughs> Haley. <laughs> Haley. Haley, are you listening to me? Haley, are you so there? Good. Hey, everyone. Welcome to Monster Donut, a literary and historical deep dive into the Percy Jackson series and all of its following spinoffs. I'm Emily, a classic scholar-ish. And I'm Phoebe, a dramaturg and story consultant. And today we are wrapping up Heroes of Olympus. Yeah, we're already here. Dang. I think maybe because the books are so long in my brain, I was like, that's going to take longer, which it didn't. <laughs> it should have. We should have given <laughs> ourselves more time to do that. But <laughs> So today uh, is going to be really fun because we've got a bunch of questions and analyses submitted by you all, um, which is amazing. And um, I've also gone back through like I did with the first wrap up and um, sort of come up with a list of a few like different topics and questions that I think we could definitely talk a bit more about. Okay, where do we want to start? We got a message from Sarah. This might be a good starting point um, to talk about what's actually in this series. Sarah on Instagram asked, or really just said, would love to hear your thoughts on what the main messages slash themes of Heroes of Olympus are. Yeah, um, how did we not talk about that? I... (laughs) (laughs) 
I just, when I saw that question, I was like, oh man, we really didn't talk about what the series was about at all. There's just so many character arcs. You get distracted. I mean, like, there's a couple things that we touched on, I think, but yeah. I think the main one for me is the connection between memory and identity that's the one that's come up the most that's those are the ones i have written down in response to this question i think memory and like coming to understand who you are either because of your memories or outside of your memories yeah and there's a lot of different ways memories are manipulated in this series so there's kind of the obvious ones of like having them taken away for brief periods of time or potentially forever there's also like sometimes tied to that sometimes not like choosing whether or not to keep certain memories like choosing what to remember choosing um something that kind of is almost reminiscent to of um in the last series when selena reveals that she was the traitor and you know people are like oh i heard and percy's like that nope nope we're not we're not even gonna talk about or like give any kind of airspace to this to anything besides like this narrative that i want to tell that remembers her as being a hero I, i think it's those two and then the other big theme for me is there's a lot here about i think the first series unpacked being a hero in a way where it was very careful to not make Percy a chosen one and the way the prophecy works out in the end is he's not the chosen one that's like the big twist and reveal and we saw the build-up to that where so many times he was told like no what you have to do is stand aside you are not the one that's gonna have to save the day and I think here instead of purposely distancing ourselves from the myths in which the main characters are chosen ones we have taken them all on and everyone's a chosen one Yeah. So it's sort of analyzing what it means to be a hero in the context of being a chosen one. Mm -hmm. I think those two ideas, the memory identity thing and the chosen one thing, are the main vehicles for how this series continues to talk about things like agency Mm -hmm. and storytelling. Mainly, like you were saying about Selena and how they're choosing to remember her. I think that that's an idea that comes back when... Percy and Annabeth are leaving Tartarus and are telling Bob and Jameson that they're going to continue to tell their stories and that that's how they'll live on or Percy thinking to himself that his legacy is going to live on in his children and that's how he's going to continue fighting when he's gone and the agency thing I think is tied up with the the overwhelming feeling that I got that all of these characters just felt so puppeted and that all of it felt like it was out of their control which I I brought all of that up in the Blood of Olympus episode and the ways that it starts to feel like they have no control especially with Percy back in uh Son of Neptune when we keep referring to Percy as a pawn from Gaia's point of view but then in the next book we have Percy realizing that he's been a pawn of the gods this whole time it's just that total lack of control that comes with being a chosen one Mm. that is the continuation of that whole thought that we had at the very beginning of (laughs) The Lightning Thief. Mm. I feel like this series is almost like the distorted opposite mirror being held up to the first series. For example, Percy and Frank come up a lot as parallels to each other. And also, you kept bringing up Annabeth and Jason being very similar. And then there's also um, further ones, because we start the series with Piper sort of paralleled with Selena from the first series. Beckendorf is, like, a little paralleled with Leo. Yeah, and there's also, like, we talked about parallels just between books with, like, the fourth book in both series being very similar. Like, I see a lot of Battle of the Labyrinth in House of Hades. And did we mention, I think we mentioned in Mark of Athena that you felt like it was a little bit of the Titan's Curse. 
Or was that Son of Neptune that was like Titan's Curse? I think it was Lost Hero that was like Titan's Curse. It was the Lost Hero that was like (laughs) Titan's Curse. Yeah, but okay, so I was thinking a lot about the parallels. Also how this all kind of plays into another theme we see come up a lot. Basically, the theme of like replaying stories, which we see being brought up. We saw it brought up even in the first book, Mm -hmm. uh, The Lightning Thief, to clarify when I say the first book. The first book. And specifically how in Heroes of Olympus, I think that theme develops. It's not just about replaying stories. It's about all of these characters coming back and, like, setting the record straight. Mm -hmm. Like, being able to rewrite their stories or to come back and be like, no, this story you've heard about me is wrong. Which I think is interesting because, again, I think we brought this up a little bit when we were talking about, like, the Minads, how, like, you, you said that the last series is already becoming legend. Yeah. So, you know, not only are we replaying myths, we're, it's like almost replaying a lot of the first series. Yeah, and treating the first series as the myth. While we're discussing the shift from the first series to the second series, do we want to talk a little bit about the switch to third person? Because we have a question here from Magical Myths Podcast who asked what we think about it, basically. They also asked if we felt like it would have been better with a first-person style narration. Having read Rick's other first-person books, I think he's just better at first-person. He's able to capture what's unique about a character in first-person in a way he might not always do in third person when it comes to like internal dialogue yeah i remember you saying once to me that one of the only things you actually enjoyed about the lightning thief movie was the fact that if you actually go back and read lightning thief percy doesn't say funny things out loud it's all his internal monologue and what you thought was great about the movie in a way that what you found personally very entertaining. To be clear, you d- Phoebe did not mean great as in this was a good choice the movie made. She meant it was great because I personally enjoyed it, which is that the movie in the movies, Percy doesn't make jokes and isn't funny and it acts very much like book Percy does to an outside observer. To be even clearer, he doesn't act like that in the books. It's It's more just like... I was worried that he would be making jokes and would be like a like a Peter Parker uh, styles from Teen Wolf kind of character who has all of that like sarcasm and like has has all the jokes but doesn't have any of the like anger behind it. This might not be great examples, but no, movie Percy doesn't have any of the personality that Percy has. It was just that one aspect. Because it's true that Percy doesn't make jokes out loud most of the time. And I found myself thinking about that rereading this too, because like Percy's making jokes out loud and it feels weird. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I I've talked like at length about this. It's in my video essay, it's in like essays that I've published online. I do think that Percy reads very differently here than he does in the original series, and it's because he makes jokes out loud when you aren't in his perspective. And, like, Mm. we do have those moments where, you know, you get to see Percy from Piper's point of view or Hazel's point of view and hear that, like, oh, he's kind of intimidating or, oh, he's not that impressive. (laughs) But you don't really get to see it. You just kind of hear them say those things, but then when you interact with Percy in their perspectives, it's just... Like, in the original series, if he makes a joke, it's usually kind of muttered under his breath or just in his own mind. Like, sometimes 
it'll come out as like a full-on hey laugh at the stupid joke that I came up with <laughs> but most of the time it's not um and so that always threw me off about this series with the shift into third person that it was like Rick was overcompensating for the fact that he wasn't in Percy's head anymore I do feel like the third person does create a bit of distance for the rest of the characters like you definitely get a lot of them and who they are but in third person there's sort of this narrative voice kind of underlying underlaying the whole thing you know you want to give enough and get enough of the personalities of each of the characters across but it's not what's driving the voice of the writing like there's always got to be this underlying narrative that's that's the real engine and i think for third person rick does a good job with it but i think the third person itself is inherently limiting because it's all kind of got to have the same sense of humor but like that sense of humor can't be percy's sense of humor because then it's just percy now i'm considering also though what this series would have been like if it was like first person only from jason's perspective or only from i guess jason is the one that makes sense but only from piper's Mm. perspective is the other option i don't know if i'd want to see the whole series from leo's (laughs) if you got one per book maybe like a change yeah that'd be interesting Especially because there are five new characters. I would have had I would have had House of Hades for Annabeth. Yeah, you could give Annabeth one. Mm, but then there are five books. You would just have to rethink the whole series. Yeah. But as a concept, <laughs> it's interesting. We did talk a little bit about how the change into third person changes how much information you're given. And whether each of the characters would ever want you to have the information that you're given. Yeah. Although I do remember us flagging a point at which that it doesn't follow our hypothesis yeah it didn't specifically there was piper not letting us know that she was considering letting jason kill percy and just seeming like she was panicked and upset throughout the whole fight and then like a scene later being like oh i almost let you kill him (laughs) i was like you didn't say that yeah now that i'm thinking about it actually though um kind of following up a little bit maybe on what we talked about before in the first series Basically, because Percy is essentially framed as not just, like, being the narrator of the story, but, like, actively telling the story to you, the reader, like, he's writing it down. I think in a way that gives him the space to go into a lot more detail about it and also, like, connect with the reader in an interesting way where it feels more like he is entertaining. He's trying to entertain the reader versus in third person, they're not writing it down. They're not telling their story here. It's just being reported. Mm -hmm. But it also feels like it's out of their hands, which I could tie back to agency and like being a chosen one that like, yeah, the story is now out of your hands and someone else is going to tell it no matter what. Yeah, because it's like, like I was saying about like this one consistent narrative voice too, where it's just like this underlying current that's just carrying them as opposed to them kind of being the ones to shape it. So I think in that way, maybe the third person is necessary because it it robs them even of that control of like being able to tell the story themselves. Mm. So while we're talking about the characters, I kind of want to go character by character and talk a little bit more about each of their arcs. Because I've done, I think we've done that for a couple of the characters, like especially like Jason. We've spent a lot of time talking about his arc, but I want to make sure that we hit each one of them. And so I, the way that I think we should do this is uh, a method that you suggested while re-listening, which was uh, that I return to the Mithras analysis, the incomplete Mithras analysis that I did in Mark of Athena. When I realized this, I started dying laughing because I was like, Phoebe, I, 
where is this analysis going of assigning them all the different stages of like the seven stages of the Mithras <laughs> journey or whatever? I, I I don't know why I questioned you. I mean, it was very underdeveloped at the time. So. I should also say the reason this came up for me, specifically, I was thinking about Jason and how he feels like he's in a kind of stasis where he just keeps being shunted back to this same place of not knowing where he fits in and like being on the cusp of making a decision. And then I was thinking about how I felt like a lot of the character arcs in this series were sort of weirdly all at a different stage of the hero's journey, which then made me think about Mithras, who is part of like Joseph Campbell's thinking of like the hero's journey, even though we don't like really know what his story actually was. We just have like images of it. So I thought it would be funny to go back and actually examine if these seven characters do line up with the seven stages of the Mithras journey. But just to clarify, if you don't remember this random scene we're talking about, <laughs> um, it's very valid because Percy and Eveth fall into Tartarus like moments later. So I don't know why you would remember this scene. But this is the scene in Mark of Athena where Annabeth finds herself basically like at an ancient cult meeting yeah. <laughs> inside of a Mithrium in which there are seven symbols uh, etched into the floor and she can only see like three of them, but she can tell that there were seven. And so I looked up what the seven were and what they might've symbolized at the time. And it seems like they were like, they, they symbolize the different rituals you would go through to achieve like different status in the cult. <laughs> the way to do this might be just going like symbol by symbol and who I, assigned and then you can argue with me if you want <laughs> mm. okay bring it on let's um, fight i'm rolling up my sleeves yeah i i got all of this information and a lot of the stuff that i'm about to say from a couple of websites but mainly the circle of ancient iranian studies and acropolis.org <laughs> sure there you go and a lot of it is just theories so oh, like yeah. i don't know take it all with a grain of salt we have no effing idea like genuinely it's so funny yeah, most of this will be made up. So the first symbol is the raven. And according to one website, <laughs> uh, in the legend of the bull slayer, the raven has the role of the messenger who comes to entrust Mithras with his mission. Uh, he takes the place, as it were, of Mercury, the messenger of the gods. And uh, one of the symbols is the caduceus, the magic staff of Hermes slash Mercury. The raven symbolizes the air and the need for the neophyte to strip himself of any form of personal pride. Uh, at this stage, it was also important to be able to harmonize with oneself. So I gave this one Jason. Yeah, I was going to say, that rings Jason to me. He's the first exchange. Yeah, I was like, he's the first one. His element is the air. Putting aside yourself, your ego, like everything about it. And harmonizing with oneself. Yeah. Okay, so yeah, so he's stuck in this stage of harmonizing with himself. Yeah, like his arc is essentially just finding balance within himself and understanding where he wants to be and who he wants to be. To quote Chess the Musical, I guess. <laughs> but a lot, of, a lot of his arc is a recovery from having his memory stolen and trying at first to return to who he was and then realizing that that person doesn't exist anymore. Like that yeah. person died the moment that Hera took his memories or Juno took his memories. Yeah. And the raven in different symbology is like a symbol of death. So that works for me. Mm -hmm. That's true. So number two 
is Nymphus, the bride. On the Santa Prisca mural, the Nymphus is shown wearing a bridal veil and placed under the protection of the planet Venus. The male bride, women we know, were rigorously excluded from the cult. This is true. Is joined to Mithras in a mystical marriage by the father. Uh, the damaged mosaic at Ostia shows as emblems of the Nymphus a torch, diadem, and a lamp. This author speculates that this part of the ritual was also associated with water. I was like, it's too easy to make this about Piper just because it's like, oh, it's Venus. And, you know, the idea of being married mystically, in Piper's case, by Hera to Jason without her consent. <laughs> yeah. I felt like it wasn't, it wasn't deep enough, though. And so I also entertained the idea of making this Percy because mm -hmm. of the water theory and because he's like, tied to the gods in a way he can't escape but i'm i'm i think i'm gonna give him a different one so this one is piper's for now yeah i was gonna say it's the water and then also like generally like you know in the ancient world a bride was sort of like again an exchange so that's how i could see it being percy like he's the other exchange he's like bound to a different family mm -hmm. by the gods which is why I, I feel like it could be Percy, but there was a later one that I was like, this feels more Percy to me. And this one, it's also associated with snakes. And I associate snakes with Piper because of the whole like... Mm, she sings the snake song. Yeah. All right. I, I buy it. While I was here, I thought I spent a lot of time thinking back on Piper's arc and like what I thought that it was. Yeah. <laughs> and I settled on it being her going from denying things like femininity and softness in a lot of ways as well as denying her heritage and just kind of living within this like carefully constructed lie about who she is, like who she's decided that she is. Mm. And then going from that to then fully like letting herself be in touch with her emotions and like her big moment in the last book in my mind is when she sings to control the monsters mm. um, when they're trying to get to the Acropolis because it's both something she achieves by embracing her family's idea of her and their stories and also embracing something that is you know beautiful and bright and something she never would have done in the first book because it conflicted too much with who she was trying very hard to be mm. yeah it's like all of the things she doesn't want to be is what she's focusing on it's also a thing where like part of rejecting being a child of aphrodite probably involves rejecting a lot of her own feelings uh specifically like things she loves and feelings of like intuition in that respect because i think a lot of people think of love as like being one of the like basest things you do emotionally so i think her learning to have to handle her emotions and even use her love as well, which we saw in i think uh, house of hades to be a source of power was her journey yeah. So number three is the soldier. Mm. The god Mithras is always regarded as an invincible god who secures victory for his followers on the battlefield. Strictly speaking, every follower of the god was enrolled in his service, and the special initiation and the taking of the military oath set the seal on entrance into his ranks. The other important part of this is that he is under the particular patronage of Mars, the god of war. Yeah. This one's a little too easy. Yeah. <laughs> But I do think if we're getting into Frank's arc, this does work really well. Mm-hmm. Especially the, like, having to go through a special initiation and taking on the military yeah. oath. The, the worship of Mithras became super popular in the Roman world because it was extremely popular with Roman soldiers. 
it -hmm. started, it kind of really grew legs in the military, um, which is probably why this element exists in their, you know, worship. Yeah, so something we didn't really talk about is Frank and the staff of Diocletian and taking on the Legion. Yeah. I do think, like, Frank starts this series so upset with his mother's death and so unable to understand why she made that sacrifice and, like, I think to an extent also, like, why she went off to war in the first place. I do think it's interesting that also a huge piece of his arc is the strategy element and the commander element specifically. Like, he's not just becoming a soldier. He's becoming a commander. Mm -hmm. I found it actually really helpful to me for, like, understanding Frank's arc. The fact that his symbol in my notes was right under Piper's. Because I feel like his arc is also about accepting who his godly parent is and that the things that he hates about his godly parent are things that exist within him and like eventually finding confidence in accepting that but in his case it's you know the battle strategy and the leadership and the anger and just the war of it all Mm. (laughs) and realizing that none of that is actually in conflict with who he is which I, I liked looking at it in contrast to Piper because like in Frank's mind he thought that he was meant to be softer Like, he thought he was a son of Apollo, like, god of music and archery and poetry and medicine, Mm. and then found out he was the son of the god of war, and then had to find that, like, hardness in himself that Piper had already built up on her own, and then both of them come to understand that these things can all exist within them simultaneously, like the hardness and the softness, just in opposite directions. I just keep coming back to the Catoblup scene as well, the massacre, because I feel like that sort of shows the other side of it. And I feel like that's a piece he has to grapple with too. But it's also like, this is not the kind of son of Aries you have to be. I think it was important for him to experience that, like, you know, that, that stereotypical son of Mars moment and then to come out of it and be like, okay, I've done it. <laughs> And that's not me, even though that technically is me. (laughs) But it gives him the confidence to later in the book, you know, go on to lead and accept Jason's position. Yeah. And I would argue he's probably the most Roman character by the end of the series. Even against Reyna? (laughs) Ooh. I meant of the seven, but... Yeah. mm. (laughs) Maybe. Maybe. They're both... Ooh, that's that's a tough one. I'd have to get back to you on that one. Okay. (laughs) Um, the fourth level of initiation is called the lion, or Leo. (laughs) Mm. The lion wore a long scarlet cloak and was always of an arid and fiery nature. His symbol was a fire shovel. (laughs) We often find the lion portrayed on Mithraic reliefs in a threatening attitude beside or over a mixing vessel. Right. Yeah, that's a lot of Leo right there. That's a lot of Leo. His name's on it. (laughs) Right. The mixing vessel, it appears to be because, like, this stage of initiation was associated with honey, which would be in the mixing vessel. But if you want to go the easy route and give this to Leo, that mixing vessel can easily be the physician's cure. (laughs) Oh, my God. I mean, I think it's, like, both, like, the tools and the making things and the fire. It's all making too much sense. I know. This is kind of, this is crazy. But now we have to talk about Leo's arc. (laughs) Yeah. I think that Leo, Leo's arc still is what it should have been. It just, like, happens in a weird roundabout way. Yeah. Because he does, like, his arc is learning to accept love from his friends in some way and accepting that he is loved by the people around him rather than being just a seventh wheel. 
he does realize that even if it's through getting a girlfriend and because of that acting normal all of a sudden (laughs) yeah and you know what's interesting is he's the middle he's the fourth symbol that means he's dead in the middle surrounded by his friends he's surrounded and he doesn't even realize it yeah again looking at his starting point he was so invested in festus because he was convinced that he inherently, I think, didn't have that much worth to them. It was always about, like, what he could do for people or, like, what he could build. He's the kind of person who feels like if he doesn't have something to offer, then he has no reason to be there and people don't want him there. Yeah, and I think by the end, he, like you said, in, like, a kind of roundabout way, first becomes, I think, self-sufficient. So he stops focusing on having to glom on to other people and goes about his own thing. I think there is an element there that also exists in Hazel's arc, which is working through the guilt, though, in some way. Mm. Like, that's part of why he feels like he has to be useful and that people don't actually want him around is because of the death of his mom and the way that he blames himself for that and how easily he can cause destruction. Like, he wants to be able to create things and be useful. Mm. The more I'm thinking about this, the more I'm not totally sure that I actually got the completion of Leo's arc in that I don't don't know if he fully got past feeling like he had to be useful. Like, I'm, I'm starting to think that might be part of why he's able to excuse himself from his friends' lives so easily. I feel like there's still a piece of him that feels like he's the seventh wheel and he's not needed, and so it's okay for him to go ahead and do this. I don't know. We might we might have to return to Leo at, at a later date. Um, okay, number five is the Persian, also known as Perseus. This one is under the protection of the moon. Like the lion, his hands are cleansed with honey, But when they administer honey to the Persian, they do this in his capacity as keeper of the fruits. In this symbol, they express the preserving element of honey. Uh, The symbols are also a scythe and sickle, as well as corn. And his symbol is the owl, and he presides over sunset. He is seen holding a burning torch pointing downwards to show to the initiate his next test, the entrance to the underworld. Uh, This initiation relates to the ability to see and to act in the darkness, inner and outer. Another attribute of Percy's is that of a silver key which opens the doors of the underworld. And also, fun fact, Perseus is the name of Perseus and Andromeda's son, who is meant to be an ancestor to the Persians. Yep. So this one's Percy. I was curious where you're going to go. There was a few different ones. I thought about Hazel, because I feel like there are obvious reasons that, at least in that second paragraph, why this would be Hazel. I was thinking Annabeth, too, with the owl. Yeah, I thought about Annabeth, but I'm, like, dedicated to giving the father at the end to Annabeth. Fair enough, fair enough. But here's the thing. We could argue about this, because these last three, I'm very, like, I thought about giving all of them to one of the last three. So I gave this one to Percy specifically because of the ability to see and act within inner and outer darkness. Mm. And something about, like preservation and keeper of of the fruits was Mm. speaking to me at first this i actually gave this one to jason at first because at the end he decides that he's going to preserve Mm. like the gods at the end and i was like well percy's not doing that um (laughs) but preservation as in like trying to keep his friends safe and everything it can also very easily be hazel but i'll just skip to the next one so that we can hear the one that i gave hazel but for bad reasons (laughs) The next one is uh, the Courier of the Sun. Uh, He is the sun daily traversing the heavens in his chariot and urging on the horses with his whip. Oh, then there's a list of just things that he's done based on the 
symbols on the wall. Apparently, mm. through the agency of the raven, he commu- communicated to Mithras to order the slaying of the bull. Uh, he also once concluded a pact with Mithras. Don't know what pact. <laughs> yeah, no idea. Uh, from Mithras, he received the accolade. I don't know what that means. <laughs> and with Mithras, he enjoyed the sacred meal before ascending into heaven. His emblems are a whip and a torch, and at uh, Santa Prisca, a globe, a nimbus, and a radiant halo. I gave that one to Hazel because she rides a horse. <laughs> Mm. Um, and also the way that I justified it to myself was also the sacred meal because that was like the big one that's mm. like the big symbol um, because so much of Hazel's story has to do with consumption her story being a sort of dark twist on a sacred meal with Gaia like draining her and her mother and people being unable to take from her gems without dying and then the connection to eating and the underworld and then like some of the research mentioned that like you went down into the underworld with the previous level and then this one was ascending from the underworld back up mm. which I, when I thought about it that way I was like it doesn't make sense for to me for Hazel to like descend into the underworld it makes more sense to me for Percy to make that journey and then for Hazel to come out of it because mm. I think we leave Percy in the descent yeah that's kind of why I that's why I went with this one was because of where we leave them as characters and what arcs they have Mm. so i i mean i don't want to fully skip over percy and percy's arc but i feel like we will probably talk about that in more depth when i get to uh there's an email that we got that we can talk about right after this Mm. but the descent into darkness and starting to understand it i i feel like percy's arc in this series has basically essentially been him losing whatever faith that he had and also losing a bit of himself along the way he comes out of his own rebirth at first believing that he's exactly the same as he was before only to be hit over and over with the realization that nothing can be the way that it was before and ending up completing the series mostly just like adrift in his relationship to the gods and to himself yeah and then that's where we just left him which is like really cool and <laughs> fine <laughs> with me <laughs> you're so fine with that i'm like so fine with that actually mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah and then with hazel with her tutelage with katie as well it's like she kind of achieves that magical enlightenment mm. mm-hmm. she gains a lot of power arguably the most power yeah she's like capable of anything by the end of the series <laughs> and learning to take this skill that like caused her so much guilt and grief in the first place and being able to summon you know anything she can imagine from it and like finding power in that yeah which is similar to kind of what leo goes through in that first book um with his fire Mm. hazel i i felt was trying to get past or trying to get beyond blaming herself for all of this happening like for raising gaia in the first place basically and for her mother's death and everything and dealing with that guilt and you know forgiving herself for what she can forgive herself for and learning to live with whatever she can't forgive from forgive herself for mm-hmm. when you mentioned like the charioteer like driving them out of the underworld that actually reminded me of the hymn to demeter as well because that's it's it's uh hermes who takes persephone out of the underworld initially 
And there's this really beautiful passage of him, like, passing through, like, the eighth air, which is the upper air, essentially, like, going up through, like, uh, you know, basically flying out of the underworld with her. Mm-hmm. Which, well, if you think about Hermes as being, like, the raven with Jason, it's like, they're the ones that have experienced death. Oh, yeah. So her being kind of the one who's able to cross boundaries, the one who, like, that makes sense to me. And then the last one of these is the father. Daddy, yes. Yes. This, the highest of the grades in the Mithria cult, is the deputy on Earth of the god himself and is therefore portrayed closed like Mithras. He is father to his initiates and guards over the interests of his community. He is also the teacher whose wisdom is symbolized by a ring and a staff. At Ostia, his symbols are the sickle of Saturn, the Phrygian cap of Mithras, which I don't know what that means. It's a funky little, it's a hat. It's fine. Okay. His Yankees cap. (laughs) (laughs) And the staff and ring, which represent his wisdom. No, she's definitely, you know, she's the head honcho. Yeah, I mean, she proclaimed herself, like, the grandmother in the book, <laughs> so yeah. even even higher than the father, <laughs> yep. but for this, we'll give her father, because of the, the whole teacher aspect. She's the leader of this quest. She has a funny hat. She's also kind of like the outsider. She's the only one that's not part of a trio in the first two books. I think what's also interesting is she's the only one, um, like, I think her arc in these books... It's a lot of her grappling with the fact that she doesn't have super crazy chosen one magic powers. <laughs> and in fact, as we talked about, a lot of the a lot of what she goes through, especially in House of Hades, is stripping her away of everything that could be like her knife, Daedalus's laptop, until she's all she has left is her wits. Like she doesn't even have her Yankee cap anymore, too. Like she just loses everything besides her wisdom, essentially. Yeah. I think even building on that, I, I think part of her arc is also her moving on from relying so heavily on her relationship with her mom, mm. because her faith in her mom is very strong. And so taking that relationship from her, and not just because her mom is absent, but because her mom has like fully turned her back on her, mm. was important for her to see so that Annabeth could really go through all of that without that support along Mm. with not having like any of the powers that everyone else has or you know her knife or her laptop and just bring it all down to her being able to flex her strength without any of that yeah strongest demigod strongest demigod still yeah (laughs) okay let's uh return to percy very quickly it Mm. won't be a quick conversation (laughs) (laughs) because it's it's there's this funny thing where like there are two turning points in Percy's arc Mm. one from an audience perspective and then one from a Percy perspective (laughs) because I think the actual turning Mm. point in Percy's arc for him is in Mark of Athena you know when he has that moment where he starts to realize why Luke turned out the way that he did because of the way that Bacchus is treating him but I don't think the audience perception of Percy actually turns with him until or in Tartarus. So he gets these two different turning points. One where he actually changes and then one where we start to realize exactly how much he's changed. So I want to talk some more about where we leave him and what we saw in House of Hades. So we have another wonderfully long email from Layla. <laughs> Thank you, Layla. I love this email. I'm going to it I'm going to focus on your magnum opus that you labeled here. <laughs> I think that discussions about Dark Percy, quote unquote, Dark Percy, within the fandom 
have become really reductive. Like, a lot of headcanons about him going full villain start with Sally or Annabeth dying, and I just think that's so boring, lol. <laughs> and also, that's literally fridging them, so I'm not a fan. Like, oh, another man who commits heinous atrocities in the name of a beautiful dead woman who'd be horrified by his actions if she was alive. So revolutionary. A big part of Percy is how much he simply loves his friends and the world, and he wants to be and do good. It's so much more interesting to think about how this capable of torturing a goddess part of him has always existed and can't be separated from the rest of him and he's just kind of been hiding it from us until now like a surprise mystery mask tool <laughs> i really like the interpretation that percy knows that there's something wrong with him and he tries to keep that side of himself as controlled as possible and not let anyone see it because he loves them and he loves us the audience he doesn't want to be bad and he's not that's the most important part. He's genuinely, he's a genuinely good kid and his sassy, goofy, silly side is real and not just a front he's putting on to throw us off. He just has some murderous tendencies. <laughs> and in the first series, he tries to keep it controlled and sometimes fails, but ultimately doesn't have to confront that part of himself because he wins the war and makes a deal with the gods and thinks it's over. But in the second series, Tartarus kind of forces him to face that part of him and indulge in it. And there's no going back to hiding after that because he's doing all this stuff in front of Annabeth, who is one of the most important people in his life. And I'm so glad that Manasa brought up the fandom being thirsty for murderous Percy and that it's weird because it really is. <laughs> and it affects that the way a lot of the fandom interacts with Annabeth's character in that scene. Like, I see a lot of people getting mad at Annabeth for being scared of him because he was doing it for her. And it's just so question mark, question mark, question mark to me. <laughs> Annabeth has had not great relationships with the men in her life, a lot of whom have had some type of power dynamic with her in which she obviously is not the one with the power. So like, why wouldn't she be afraid of her extremely powerful boyfriend flexing exactly how dangerous he can be while also showing that he's not going to stop if she asks him to? Like, nothing against Persebeth because I do love them, but it's a miracle she stayed with him after that because I would have been gone so fast. <laughs> This is also related to another question that I got from Sophia, my sister, who's just said to me, talk about Dark Percy, please. So I'll gladly do that. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like just to clarify, if you're not as online as us, saying like Dark Percy or like Dark a person's name, it's not as popular now, but it was very popular in like 2014 to talk about the alternate universe where a character would turn evil, which it was very interesting to watch the shift within the fandom talking about Dark Percy because Dark Percy was a concept that already existed and it was just mostly used for like the world where Percy joined the Titan army or, you know, turned against the gods in some way. That was Dark Percy. And then, you know, House of Hades came out and now we're talking about Dark Percy, as in the Percy that we saw in House of Hades, which which was a, a shift for sure. Mm. <laughs> and then there was sort of this discrepancy in the fandom that was like, which Dark Percy are you talking about? Because half the people were saying Dark Percy, meaning the Percy that we currently had in the series. And then half the people were talking about Percy still in the way of like, you know, he's going to come out of Tartarus and he's going to murder everybody. <laughs> and <laughs> it was a phenomenon that i i don't know if i've seen that happen because like when i've seen like dark insert character name here it's because like an alternate version of a character showed up in a show or a movie or something not because the character in the thing literally just did something that made everyone's perspective on them shift so drastically mm. <laughs> that they became the dark version of the character that everyone was always talking about mm. 
But I think that all of this is relevant uh, to what Percy's arc is in this series. Because now we, we all had, like Annabeth, we all had to face something within Percy that had always been there, but that Percy held in well enough that a lot of people hadn't even realized it was there. Even if it wasn't conscious. I don't know if Percy is consciously holding this part of himself back most of the time. But at the same time, even though it, it is something that has always been a part of him, I think in this book was a level of anger and manipulation and like a, the, a capacity for violence that we hadn't seen from him before this. With what Leila says about how Percy always has the potential, I, I would agree with that. Right. I, I think Percy has always wanted control like this and he's always wished he was powerful enough to fight back and he's always enjoyed like flexing his powers and seeing how much he's capable of and it really was just in this series he had this development since Son of Neptune where he was starting to pull away from the gods until the end of Mark of Athena where he admits that he feels Luke's spite and that now he knows that when they defeat Gaia and the giants they'll still be under the control of the gods and he doesn't want that now and so when he heads into Tartarus he's angry and resentful and you know really feeling for the first time that all he has is himself and his friends and so that's all that's really keeping him going now is the need to protect the people he cares about and so all of that ends up being directed at anything that stands in the way of that of him doing that. It's, he's at an extreme and is looking for an outlet, and so Tartarus becomes that outlet. Like, to me, it's very clearly a response to all of the things that happened to him in Son of Neptune and Mark of Athena, the way that he acts in Tartarus, rather than it being, like, a new side to him. It's just those parts of him that have always been there end up being both great survival instincts and what he ends up calling on to let all of that out. I also... It brought up to me our discussion about point of view and about how in the first series especially because he's the one writing it like is he or is he not biased and the answer is obviously yes um but it's also about like i think i mentioned something about how you only want to show the parts of yourself that you feel like can be redeemed whenever you're telling Mm -hmm. a story and yet you also you will show some negative aspects of yourself because people don't perceive a story as being truthful usually if you're not you know at least a little self-critical i think that's why i really like that layla points out percy can't hide anymore because annabeth saw him like annabeth is his audience in that moment and so normally like i've i've thought about that moment a lot in the way that it would have been written if percy if we were in percy's perspective and i am so sure that he would have tried to play it off but like the fact that annabeth was there is a big part of why he can't do that. And so I guess in Blood of Olympus, the end of his arc, I mean, the majority of it is him responding to what he did in Tartarus rather than a completion of where he's at, like mentally. Mm. It's mostly just him grappling with the fact that that part of him came out and with an audience this time. And I think even doing that made him realize how scary that part of him is because I think when he does it on his own, that's not something he's really had to worry about, except for when it like gets out of control, which scares him. But it doesn't stop him from trying again. But this yeah. time, he couldn't narrate his way out of this one. Yeah. So I think coming back full circle, in that way, he Percy is sort of stuck right at this like precipice as a character. Yeah. Like his arc in this series was literally just bringing him up to the edge and then leaving him there. Yeah. 
So we'll see what he does in the next series. <laughs> we'll see what he does in Chalice of the Gods. We're reading that first. We'll see what he does in Chalice of the Gods. And also in uh, the Kane Chronicles short stories. Yeah. Haven't talked about those yet. Those are next. <laughs> those are next. And you know what? Surprisingly a lot there. There's so much more there than I remembered. I don't think I ever actually read the third story. When I read it, I was like, I was wait. surprised when I read the third one that you hadn't like hyped it up. I was like, wait, this is... If I had remembered what happened in that story, I would have been hyping it this entire podcast. I would have, like, episode one been like, and you guys, you have to stick around for the Kane Chronicles short story number three. <laughs> Specifically. While we're talking about Percy and Annabeth and that dynamic, there are a couple questions that I got on Tumblr from the great IDK. How do you think Percy and Annabeth are feeling about Luke, since this is the last we see them as main characters until the Childs of the Gods, which I feel like Luke will definitely be relevant in, in some way or another? I hadn't considered that. <laughs> mm. um, and th the second question was, uh, similar to the last question, how do you think the Percy-Beth dynamic has evolved since the last series? What do you think is weighing on their relationship as they enter Childs of the Gods? Reluke. I mean, both of them independently think about Luke in this series. And as we sort of pointed out, neither of them do it in a negative way. Right. Which is kind of remarkable for both of them. Yeah. <laughs> now that he's like no longer in that big bad slot in their brains, I feel like maybe it's a lot easier for Percy to reflect on him as like something that is from his past as opposed to like thing he has to fight right now that he's no longer a threat he can actually like look at him and see him yeah i feel like there's something interesting here with the betrayal because i feel like the ending of the first series we're left feeling like luke has sort of atoned for it and i think like percy's mm -hmm. main issue with luke was that betrayal and i think percy feels like that was enough i think it was a combination of the betrayal and then all of the things that percy had learned of like no, we have to protect our parents. And, you know, Chiron says that we have to protect Western civilization. And you're mm. trying to destroy it. And that's everything that we know. What are you doing? <laughs> and so a lot of this series is Percy starting to fully unlearn a lot of that. Because, mm. like, we saw in the, in the first series, like, at least in the last book, Percy starting to understand where Luke was coming from on a personal level. And then throughout this series is learning it more on like a structural level. Mm. Yeah. Whereas Annabeth, we talked a little bit about like her coming to realize who Luke really was at the end of the last series. But I don't think she's the kind of person to let that like color the good memories that she has. Because I think the way he comes up in her brain most of the time is like as memories of when they were younger. Mm. And when she was, you know, on the run with him and stuff. I might be misremembering that. He might come up in another capacity that I'm forgetting. <laughs> but I think most of the times when Annabeth thinks about him, it's like the younger Luke rather mm -hmm. than the older Luke. Who I don't think she would talk about in the way that even Percy does in this series. Where Percy's talking about him and is like, oh, my former sword fighting mentor. And I'm starting to realize why Luke thought like that. Well, I think Annabeth almost started out in that place and then over the course of the first series was like starting to realize where Luke was wrong and like distancing herself from that in the last mm. book. So I don't know that she would think of him as positively as Percy does, which is a funny thing to say. <laughs> funny little twist. 
As far as the Percivets dynamic goes and how it's evolved. Well, they've trauma bonded. Except that they almost haven't because they haven't talked about it at all. They <laughs> They're pretending not. it didn't happen. <laughs> yeah, there's a line about Percy like not wanting to like leave Anna. Like he needs her around. Yeah. There's a lot of that even before they go into Tartarus. There's um, when Annabeth sees him again after he disappears. She says that her feelings have grown more intense or like painful even mm. when she thinks about Percy and that like she needs him there. And then mm. after Tartarus, it's like they both, especially Percy, doesn't want like Annabeth out of his sight. I mean, I guess Tartarus is probably the most time they've spent together uninterrupted since um, they got together. <laughs> that's true well because you think about it like you know the last series ends they're finally together and they get what like three months not even act of like actually dating and they're not like in the same place like when we when we read like singer of apollo like annabeth's not there she's like visiting her dad yeah and then percy's just gone for like oh eight months is it or six months depends on if you think the lost hero happened in october or december <laughs> it it didn't though this is the problem empirically <laughs> it did not she spent more time looking for percy than they've been together yeah and he in his own way has also had that like angst and pining because you know he remembers her name at least it's like both of them have like turned the other into this need when they're not there and then they finally reunite and they're back on a quest. Like, they don't really get time to themselves to, like, debrief or to, you know, decompress. So I think in that way, the relationship is both so new and yet quite intense. And they've been kind of thrown into a pressure cooker is what I'm saying. Yeah, I'm very curious what their relationship will look like in Chalice of the Gods. Yeah, there's a lot of stuff they haven't talked about. They haven't talked about the Tartarus stuff. There's a lot of stuff that they're both not handling very well. And all of it pertains to their relationship, the stuff that they're not talking about or handling well. Yeah. Both are holding on to each other as this, like... Right. Because for longer than they've been together, that was, like, the thing that was keeping them going. Yeah. They have a lot of shit to get through, is my conclusion. And I hope they go through it. I hope Rick doesn't just, like, pretend that this isn't an issue. Mm Mm-hmm. Top of my wish list for... Chalice of the Gods. (laughs) Yeah. I don't even care if they start from a place of, like, not addressing it, but if over the course of the book they don't realize that there's a lot that they haven't talked about. Yeah. They need to talk. I, I, it'll still bother me if it's only one scene, but I will take one scene. (laughs) I will take one conversation if I have to. I would prefer it be a book-long revelation, but... (laughs) So one thing we should check back in on, because I feel like it's been an open debate still, is what we think Percy's fatal flaw is. Yeah, we do have a, a question or message about this, because we've we've basically very explicitly said we don't think his fatal flaw is loyalty and it's got to be something else. But we did get a message from Ethan, in parentheses, not a son of Nemesis, on Twitter. Right. Who said, I think loyalty is definitely Percy's fatal flaw, despite Athena saying she could be wrong. The largest nail in this coffin, in my eyes, is the fact that his Achilles spot is on, on his lower back because he can't imagine anyone he trusts stabbing him there. Being a leader, those he trusts are naturally behind him a lot of the time and they would never backstab him. I also think Ethan represents Percy's loyalty to humanity, but that idea I haven't fleshed out fully. Hmm. I mean, I love any opportunity to reduce Ethan down to something he represents. <laughs> <laughs> That's an interesting thought. Ethan represents Percy's loyalty to humanity. As in Ethan is humanity in this situation? Or, hmm. 
I want I want real life Ethan to elaborate, even though it, clearly the idea isn't fleshed out yet, like you said. Yeah, because the way I'm trying to think about it is I'm thinking about like our first scene we meet Ethan, where Percy spares him. Yeah, even though it's unwise. So I yeah. s- I see it there, like no matter m- how many times it like backstabs him and leaves him behind first he just keeps trying to save people um until they betray him and in that case (laughs) die about it but (laughs) you know i feel like that is actually a fairly strong argument for why loyalty isn't his fatal flaw because like i'm loyal to my friends and if a friend ever does me dirty my instant reaction isn't you have betrayed me (laughs) i'm never speaking to you again no i i also i i think for loyalty to be percy's fatal flaw he wouldn't care if you betrayed him because it would be like a fatal thing that like even no matter what you did he would be loyal to you Mm. and so the fact that he will you know turn on people like nico or like luke for what they did and like the the main thought in his head being i want them dead that to me says that it's not fatal because it would need to go further than that but i will say in this series loyalty feels like it's at least refocused on as his fatal flaw like rick clearly dug his heels in (laughs) Mm. which i think was probably to help him set up something in the future that we never got to like i think you know this just leads straight into the question that uh, someone else sent so i'll just read that (laughs) yeah sarah over email said in son of neptune Mars tells Frank that someday soon, Percy will face a sacrifice that he can't make, and that without Frank's sense of duty, he'll fail. The whole war will go sideways, and Gaia will destroy our world. We found out in Blood of Olympus that this sacrifice, quote-unquote, is Percy letting Jason Piper and Leo fight Gaia without him, but I never found that satisfying because it seemed so underwhelming compared to how the sacrifice was built up in Son of Neptune. Is it possible that when Rick wrote Son of Neptune, he had a different plan for the sacrifice Percy would need to make? If so, what might it have been? Thank you so much, Sarah. (laughs) I'd love to tell you. (laughs) Phoebe um, texted me a photo of your email with just Sarah gets me at the top of the text. (laughs) Because I've I've just been like dropping hints about this the whole time that I think that that line is like the biggest clue that there is like something up in this series that he changed courses halfway through. Yeah. I mean, the, the thing that this email doesn't explicitly mention is the line that comes right around these lines from mars which is mars repeating what percy's fatal flaw is Mm. so this is in response to the fact that percy theoretically would sacrifice the world to save a friend Mm. and so mars is telling frank that that choice is going to come for percy and that if frank isn't there to stop him gaia will destroy the world um which feels like just such a huge yeah I wish that that would have been such a good scene. That would have been crazy to see happen. <laughs> but yeah, I I think that this line plus like a couple of other smaller ones that I think I might have pointed out where it just feels like there's more going on here. I feel like those are the biggest clues that Rick seems to have been on a on a path and then somewhere changed course. I think we sort of decided that it was somewhere around House of Hades 
because we started getting things like, oh, all of a sudden the prophecy is actually about uh, Leo and Jason definitely dying at the end of the series. Or like uh, we get this like recentering of the entire series on that original trio of Piper, Jason, and Leo rather than focusing on the four other characters that are in the room. So yeah, I, I think that there was something else going on here. My theory is really tied up in, I think when it came to this scene on the Acropolis, it was supposed to be the culmination of all of that foreshadowing about Percy having to make a sacrifice, about a blood sacrifice having to happen here, and that it would also be the culmination of Percy's development in the series as someone who is realizing how much of a pawn he's been and like reaching down into that like well of anger with a purpose now. And in this version of the of the series, he's got Gaia continuing to appear to him the way that she does in Son of Neptune and like actually making sense to him. Like I mentioned in our last episode that in moments, the things that Gaia promises appeal to a lot of the themes of both of these series, including, you know, it appeals to Percy in Son of Neptune when he sees a land beyond the gods. So Mm -hmm. I think we were going to lean into that idea and let Gaia start to feel genuinely tempting in a way that Kronos wasn't necessarily because her rising would be paired with our failing idea of the gods. And also Mm -hmm. I think this might be why Gaia's motives don't feel solid because we were supposed to like learn about them over the course of the series as Percy learned about them. Mm. And all of that would lead up to a moment on the Acropolis where Percy is faced with a very explicit, like, save your friend or save the world choice. Although in my mind, the save the world idea would be more of a save the world as you know it, like the gods, Western civilization, that concept that he was fighting for in the last series. The only thing that I am not solid on is what the sacrifice would have been here. Yeah. It The only idea that I have in my head is if it was like Percy having the choice to give himself up as a blood sacrifice. Mm-hmm. Or I, it might have been something else here, but he, it would be Percy having a moment of total clarity on the Acropolis. where And yeah. Frank would be there and would probably recognize it and realize that Percy was about to sacrifice the entire world to save a friend. And for the sake of drama, he would probably manage to talk him out of it and stop him like a moment too late for something. And then Gaia would wake up. So like Percy would still be the one to wake up Gaia. Mm. But like there's I haven't worked the blood sacrifice thing into all of this. Like none of it, none of it totally logistically makes sense yet right now. But it's like I feel like there was a trajectory that Percy was on that we were setting him up for. And we were just getting hints of it throughout this series Mm -hmm. instead of like in my head, the plan is kind of laid out in this moment with Mars where he says like Percy is going to have this choice. He's going to be given the choice to save the world or save a friend and he's going to make the wrong one unless you stop him, which like you need to have that moment somewhere in the series so that Frank can fail to stop him. (laughs) or at least get like almost there and then stop him like at the last second. It just, it felt like it was setting up something that had to be huge. And so this is the only version of it that I can see like the foundation laid for in the series, but there might be, you know, a totally different version of this that exists in Rick Road and said, there probably Mm. is. 
the only other thing I can contribute is that right in front of the Parthenon, there's all these markings on the stone that they think are like pens for the oxen they would sacrifice during the Panathenaic festival to Athena. So I'm just painting a picture of like them bringing back these like oxen pens and herding these children into them (laughs) for the blood sacrifice. I showed them to you when we went. Yes, you did. Because I, I remember, because we were walking around the Acropolis, and Phoebe's like, where, where is the bleeding? Where's the blood sacrifice going to be? <laughs> and I was like, I hadn't read Blood of Olympus at this point, so I was like, well, right here. I think right here makes sense. <laughs> I think the only thing that's, like, not... If I could just figure out how Percy was involved in there being a blood mm. sacrifice in the same scene, and that, like, Percy would raise Gaia accidentally because i still am very aware that this is a children's book and he wouldn't do it on purpose (laughs) to me it makes sense if he's gonna sacrifice himself to save frank yeah i think it all has to be he's gonna sacrifice himself but then it's like the the other like there needs to be a female demigod here who's gonna die also makes it complicated if percy were considering sacrificing himself it would tie in nicely with the thoughts that he was having earlier in this book with him like swimming directly into a pool of poison <laughs> the just the place where his mind is at in this book also i still can't get over the fact that that's where we're leaving him i know <laughs> like i i just cannot believe that rick was like all right that's enough writing percy for now did you guys like it <laughs> <laughs> and just parked him especially because percy doesn't get a point of view chapter <laughs> in blood of olympus it means that the last time you're in his brain is the end of House of Hades. (laughs) Like, you read House of Hades and you're like, oh my god, what is going on here? I can't wait to see what Percy's up to next because this this has to have been a traumatic and, like, brain-altering experience. And Rick was like, oh, you wanted to see that? You wanted to see that? No, no, no. He's just gonna joke about drowning gods for the rest of this book. Oi. Um, while we're talking about this, I'm gonna send you something. What? Uh, this uh, This is a blog post. That Rick made in 2020. Oh my god, did he write this inspired by the shawarma scene in Avengers? <laughs> okay, I, I've never seen this before. Published March 9th, March 29th in 2020. Wow, that's quite a... So we're, we're like just at the beginning of COVID. It's called Nachos After the War, colon, a Heroes of Olympus outtake. I hope everyone is staying safe and well, exclamation point. I was recently going through my archives and came across this short snippet I wrote back in 2014 shortly after The Blood of Olympus came out. I had teased my fans that I might make the last book nothing but the seven main demigods sitting around eating nachos for 500 pages, Rick. No, I was also well aware that fans would cry when they read Blood of Olympus, in parentheses, for many reasons, and parentheses, but especially because it went back to the three demigod POVs that started the series, Jason, Piper, Leo. But no Percy? That's with a bunch of E's, by the way. No Annabeth? Wah! Exclamation point. Yeah. Yeah. That was intentional. It was kind of the point. The Percy and Annabeth had to step away from the spotlight and let other heroes do their part. Stepping back is often just as difficult as stepping up. Is he quoting himself there? Is that what Hestia says? It's yielding, sorry. Anyway, I wrote this little scene where the seven demigods are together again after the war with Gaia is over, and they are, in fact, just sitting around eating nachos, chatting about how they feel about the issues I mentioned above. I never finished the scene, and I can't promise you it fits in the canon of stories that have come afterwards, but I figured you guys might enjoy it, especially in these stressful stay-at-home times. Be good to each other. Stay well. Someday we will be able to sit around the table together and eat nachos. 
the whole thing is centered. The whole thing is it's center aligned. <laughs> Why? Oh God. Okay. Just read it to yourself, and when you read any particular lines that. Uh, Wait, I'm sorry. He just made nachos like right after getting back. <laughs> he showed up. <laughs> He's like, hey guys, I'm not dead. I'm gonna make you some nachos. While they're all like, Leah, what the f Anyway. <laughs> Will you come to visit Camp Jupiter? I know Reyna would like to see you. <laughs> Reyna does not care about him. <laughs> no. <laughs> I'm just gonna read this sentence this two sentences. Percy noticed a dreamy, happy look on Leo's face, like he just had a really good dream. <laughs> Wrapped in warm blankets in a comfortable bed. It made him happy for Valdez, but also a little sad. Like, Coach Hedge wrote that sentence. <laughs> I, I'm pretty sure Coach Hedge is the only person that calls him Valdez. Percy and Leo are not even on first name terms. Oh my god. This is making me a little nervous for the Chalice of the Guts. <laughs> oh no. Oh no. Hazel smiled. Someday, when they write this story, I, know. <laughs> I bet the readers will say the same thing. The great Percy Jackson and Annabeth Chase, dot, dot, dot. Their last challenge was to not be the ones who solved the challenge. But your struggle is being able to let go. Maybe the people who read your story, dot, 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 that will be their struggle, too. <laughs> um, so this is what Rick Riordan's response to what we just said about Percy not being in that book is. Uh, thoughts? <laughs> It feels like he had a point where I'm going to tin hat a little bit here. That's what the last like 10 minutes has been. I know. <laughs> We've just been tin hatting the whole time. But like, it's interesting to me, like the way at the beginning when he talks about the fact that he want was joking that he just like wanted the last book to be them all just like hanging out together, basically, because his desire chiefly was to write a book that was just all of these characters hanging out because he just likes them. But the thing is, like, hanging out in a story is not how you learn and grow. And it feels like that whole thing was him trying to justify his cowardice. <laughs> he basically wrote himself into a bit of a corner, I think, where he had to sacrifice somebody. And then he came up with something else where he didn't have to sacrifice somebody. You know what I just remembered? There yeah. was a whole publicity campaign before Blood of Olympus came out where they sent these, like, spoiler boxes to seven different YouTubers. And each box came with a different character and a quote about that character in the book. And then it was, like, on the other side, it would be, like, who will survive? Like, they were really pushing the someone's gonna die in this book. I totally forgot they did that. <laughs> well, okay, this is my follow-up question. What was the fandom reaction to this blog post? People hated it. <laughs> uh, well, yeah. The thing that gets me too is it's like it's like oh the whole point is Percy and Annabeth have to yield, and it's like no that was the first series, Rick. That was the first series, and also like I wanted to be in Percy and Annabeth's heads after a traumatic experience. I don't think that's a crazy thing to ask for. <laughs> but the thing that really bothers me is that he has Hazel explain this to Percy as if Hazel and Frank weren't also pushed aside in the last book and completely forgotten. <laughs> Yeah, Like, Percy sitting there and being like, does anyone else feel like I wasn't even there in the last book? And then having Hazel, like, comfort him feels like such an insult to Hazel and Frank. Frank, who's not even in this story, basically. Yeah. But it was like he needed to recenter everything on Jason, Piper, and Leo for, I guess, poetic reasons. <laughs> 
I guess? He claims, like, oh, yeah, this is where it started, when it didn't start that way. It started with Percy going missing. It's like, yes, the books, the second series started with them, but it wasn't about them. It was about all of them. Just rereading this made me so angry all over again. <laughs> it feels more like I feel like he lost the plot, he lost the thread, and he didn't want to hurt anybody. This is just like a writing advice podcast now, but like that's the biggest instinct you have to kill. You have to part your characters to write good stories. I also think if you're gonna write like a blood sacrifice storyline, you probably should go into it having some idea of who's gonna be the blood yeah. sacrifice. <laughs> should we um, <laughs> talk about something else? <laughs> I yeah. feel like we've been here for a long time. Should we talk about Western civilization? Because we said we were going to return to it at the end of each series and talk about yes. this, the, how we're feeling about it. <laughs> yeah, how, how do we think that's been developed in this series? Um, strangely. <laughs> <laughs> it's like the attitude toward the gods has clearly shifted at the end with the, the um, sort of Olympus, bizarro Olympus scene that we talked about. At least the attitude towards Zeus has changed. But at least in Percy's case, it feels like all of the gods, because that, like, realization came to him when he was talking about Bacchus and Hera. Yeah. I feel like a lot of the stuff in that I've seen in the way the archaeology was treated and all of the interesting little tidbits about how the West, how the ancient world is still changing because of gods and, like, the new West. I feel like this series makes a conscious effort to unground itself from the ancient worlds and like the physical realities of the ancient world. So I feel like it is interesting like having the Mother Earth like be the villain of this series and having the Western civilization like by default sort of become the the good thing that's like shaping the earth, that's like controlling the earth, that's like fighting the earth. Because I think the thing with the Earth, at least the way I think about it, and I think the way a lot of us probably think about it, like being the generation that's been raised, I think, very cognizant of climate change, we're kind of taught that there's an inevitability to nature taking its course. And, like, the danger of climate change is not that the Earth will become uninhabitable, period. It's that the Earth will become uninhabitable to us as we exist. Because the Earth will always persist and will always, like, move on. And there will be, like, new animals and species living on it. That's how I think this series starts to develop the West. Mm, as, like, inevitable as it seems. Oh, God, I'm going to start uh, quoting Captain Flint. <laughs> that it, it, it can't stand up to the Earth and time and, you know. I mean, that's the first series is time. But <laughs> yeah, it's time and then it's the Earth. I am hype for Trials of Apollo, though. Yeah. And y'all, if you if you haven't read Trials of Apollo, if, you, if you're like, I don't know, I don't think I should read, I don't want, do, do it. Like It's so good. Like, I'm so serious. I've said this before as a joke, not on this podcast, but like elsewhere, that like if you haven't read Trials of Apollo, you're missing an entire piece of like, not just, you know, there's a third series that you're missing. It's you're missing a piece of the first series. Like there are things that you don't know. <laughs> that were going on in the first series and so you're missing a piece of it while you're like analyzing the series you like can't have a full picture of what this series is about until you read trials of apollo in my mind <laughs> like this mm. series as a as a three-part series it's so important to me <laughs> i think we're down to our last two questions sweet which is technically our last five questions <laughs> <laughs> So to shift gears completely, an anonymous user on Tumblr 
sent us a collection of personal questions, <laughs> including why a podcast? Do you guys usually listen to podcasts? Do you have some favorites? Do you have any other PJO podcasts that you would suggest? And you guys mentioned editing in one of your episodes. How much time do you usually have to cut off from each episode? Is it easy to tell what should stay and what shouldn't? Or do you typically stick to a pretty strict outline? The easy stuff to answer here is we do listen to podcasts. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, no, we do. I think um, why a podcast is because it just feels like the best medium for this kind of discussion. Because there's no real, like, visuals we are needing or, like, anything yeah. else. And we can just, like, have a conversation. I think that's the biggest part of it is that, like, I don't feel like we need any kind of visual. And I feel like I really realized that while making a video essay. <laughs> <laughs> because the, the video essay if we haven't I'm sure we've talked about it already yeah I have a video essay that I made that's like trying to predict what the Percy Jackson show is going to be like based on black sales but when I was making that video essay when I would get to Percy Jackson I just put up time lapses of me drawing because and then a lot of the time I just didn't have enough even of the time lapse to fill all of the time where I was talking and so I would like have to slow down the time lapse and then from there it was like well I have a lot of per Percy Jackson thoughts in general <laughs> <laughs> but this can't be just a video <laughs> and so this is like the next form mm -hmm. the future forms will be I I don't know I get a, like a microphone and I stand oh no I've already done that I've already stood on a stage <laughs> <laughs> and talked about Percy Jackson for an hour. <laughs> yeah, we uh, we just did a live show with the newest Olympian podcast, which was wild because neither of us are performers by trade. <laughs> <laughs> I got to have my Lizzie McGuire moment and whacked my head on a speaker as soon as we got on stage. <laughs> to answer the rest of this question, do we listen to podcasts? Yes. Do you have some favorites? Yes. Ones that aren't Percy Jackson related and ones that are. Everyone should go listen to the Magnus Archives. <laughs> I was just going to say, I think both of my narrative podcasts you got me into, I'm pretty sure, because you got me into the Magnus Archives and the Adventure Zone. Yeah. I, I only really listen to narrative podcasts generally, but uh, some good Percy Jackson podcasts are all of the ones that have guested on our podcast. Yeah, no, there's Of the Eldest Gods with uh, Charlie and Ray, hosted by Charlie and Ray. Best Damn Camp, hosted by Fran. And we've also had Manasa from Camp Halfhead. Um, the other host of that is uh, Aaron. Of course, there's Seaweed Bren, hosted by Erica and Carter. Uh, you know what you should do is just go to the damn meme page on Instagram. Yeah. Robert makes memes for like a whole network of Percy Jackson podcasts. So you can find basically all of their social media linked there. And on all of their social media, you can probably find links to listen to all of them. It's a fun little network. Everyone is lovely. There's a lot of different opinions, a lot of different perspectives. So it's great. Uh, the last part of this question is the part about editing. Um, I do that. <laughs> I almost wish that people could send in their answers for how long they think all of these episodes are before we edit them. Yeah. Vote now on your Get phones. your guesses in now. <laughs> yeah, vote now. Is it A... One to two hours. B, two to three hours. C, three to four hours. Or D, four plus hours. I thought you were just going to keep going down the alphabet until you got to like six to seven hours. Because that, that is what it is. It's usually six to seven hours. Because it's like we record 
just us sitting and talking yeah. like just us hanging out for six hours and then the episode is whatever comes out of that yeah. <laughs> like the the episode is the hour and a half that was actually relevant within our conversation <laughs> <laughs> but yeah it i think i find it mostly easy to tell what should stay and what shouldn't because I kind of go into like listener mode and if I'm listening and I'm like I would have zoned out here then I'm like okay let's see what about this made me zone out. Basically I go into dramaturg mode. I edit it like a dramaturg. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I just sit there yeah. and I go this shouldn't be here. This isn't helping the story. <laughs> yeah. The plot of the episode has been lost. <laughs> but yeah but that's why um, I was like allowed to rant for 40 minutes and it didn't seem weird. Because that happens every episode. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, no, we don't t stick to a strict outline at all. We kind of just move through yeah. the book naturally and yeah. see what happens. Well, as a final question, we got a couple questions that sort of add up to, would you ever talk about the Percy Jackson musical or the movies or uh, the Kane Chronicles short stories came up? I feel like this kind of opens us up to explaining where we're heading next. Um, because we aren't reading Trials of Apollo next. What we're doing instead is we're going to try and fill this time between Heroes of Olympus and Trials of Apollo with other canon that comes in here and basically just bide our time until Chalice of the Gods comes out next month. That's crazy that I'm saying it comes out next month. So that we can read Chalice of the Gods when it comes out right where it's supposed to happen chronologically and then get into Trials of Apollo with Chalice of the Gods in mind. So the next thing that we're reading is the Kane Chronicles short stories uh, because they take place right after Blood of Olympus as far as I can tell. And then once Chalice of the Gods comes out our plan is basically to record it like we did our son or at least I did our Sun and the Star episode so each individually like live reacting as we read and then coming together to talk about what we just read. And then in terms of the musical and the movies, in my head, that depends on the strike. <laughs> yeah, because for those who don't know, they've just released guidelines that the unions have released guidelines for um, podcasters and people who are reviewing and talking about things that are struck. That basically outlined that we, as a podcast, should not be promoting those things. You're allowed to watch them as a consumer, but you should not be essentially doing any work in promoting the thing that might theoretically replace the actors who are striking. So we will not be talking about the show so long as that is what the unions uh, wish for us to do. So depending on that, when it actually comes out, we might be filling that space with the musical or maybe um, Magnus Chase or, or the Kane Chronicles series or potentially other I know we are interested in also looking at other Riordan uh, Rick Riordan and in the other Rick Riordan Presents series so all of that will will eventually get to all of that probably but it sort of depends whether it's before or after or during the show also with regards to the musical I think we've talked about this a little bit but just also I write musical theater Phoebe writes musical theater. Phoebe also is, as her actual job, a dramaturg, which is an editor for theater and also musical theater. So, like, oh, we are gonna talk about the musical. <laughs> oh, yes, we are. Uh -huh. We're not gonna spend one episode on the musical. <laughs> An episode per iteration. 
I saw that thing six like, times. <laughs> Phoebe, yeah, no, also, yeah, I, I didn't even put, yeah, Phoebe saw the Percy Jackson, no, seven now, you've seen it seven times now. Have I seen it seven times? Oh, yeah, I've seen it seven times. <laughs> I saw basically every version of it. Somehow not the Broadway version, but every other version of it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and then we've also got some ideas for things like character deep dives eventually that I think yeah, would be fun. interviews with people. That's all in the pipeline. So don't not, do, do not fret. We have much content to bestow upon thee. That sounded weird. No, it was normal. It was a normal thing to say. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you all for listening to Monster Donut. Thank you everybody who sent in questions or analysis for this wrap-up episode. We got a lot of, even more than last time, a lot more questions. And it was a lot of fun to read through all of them. I'm sorry if we didn't get to yours. We loved it, we promise. I am so excited to get to talk about Charles Apollo with all of you. I feel like that's going to be a lot of fun. It is going to be fun. Read the books. Read the books. I don't know how many times I have to say this. You have to go read those books. And for those of you who are very confused, who are like, I did read the books, we're not talking to you. We're talking, even I know that people like don't want to read Trials of Apollo in the fandom. And like, I get it because you all just read Blood of Olympus, <laughs> but you should, you should go read Trials of Apollo. It's genuinely so refreshing. It yeah. feels like a return in some ways. Anyway, next time we will be reading the Kane Chronicles short stories. I don't know if we're doing... We'll see whether we feel like it should be one or two episodes. Uh, You can find us on social media at PJOPod on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok. And you can also send any questions or analysis that you still have to monsterdonutpodcast at gmail.com. Also, we just added merch to our link tree. I don't know about you. I'm very excited to have a Monster Donut t-shirt. And you can find the link to that. Um, it's on Redbubble. Um, you can find it either by searching us or we're under the name Monster Donut with no space. Or um, it'll be in our link tree on our social media. Okay. Bye, everybody. Bye. <laughs> Do you love anime, gaming, movies, and discovering how your favorite pop culture affects everything you do? Then join us on Crunchyroll Presents The Anime Effect. I'm Nick Friedman. I'm Lee Alec Murray. And I'm Leah President. Every week you can listen in while we break down the latest pop culture news and dish on what new releases we can't get enough of. Whether you love movies, I'm going to tell you all about the uh, hopeful 4K re-release of Tron Legacy that happens. (laughs) (laughs) I'm right there with you. Or music. The music in this show is absolutely incredible. Or anime. And under this mask is another mask. (laughs) You can discover your new favorites right here on The Anime Effect. Listen every Friday, wherever you get your podcast, and watch full video episodes on Crunchyroll or on the Crunchyroll YouTube channel.
Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Spring, is that you? Warmer temps mean new Albert styles. Meet the Superlight Collection, the lightest ever shoes from Allbirds, now in fresh colors. These must-have travel shoes have a lighter-than-air feel and barely their fit that made them the most packable shoes ever. That means more comfort and less baggage. Try the Superlight Tree Runner with a cushy foam midsole and breathable eucalyptus fiber upper. Plus, they're comfy right out of the box. So, what can you do in a Superlight shoe? What can't you do is the better question. And because they're super packable, the real question is, where are you taking them? Experience how Allbirds redefines comfort. Visit Allbirds.com and use code SUPER24 for a free pair of socks with a purchase of $48 or more. That's A-L-L-B-I-R-D-S dot com, code SUPER24.